Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. In this episode of Boss Files, venture capital still seems to have a big problem with women. Today, women receive just a fraction of VC funding compared to men. But breaking that barrier is Kirsten Green of Forerunner Ventures. She is the lead investor behind popular retail companies like Birchbox, a subscription service for beauty products. I sat down with her and Katya Beauchamp, the founder and CEO of Birchbox, for some straight talk on what it will take to get more funding to female-led startups. So the reason I wanted to sit down with both of you together is because I love women who support women. Me too. And especially (laughs) women in the VC world where you are very underrepresented. You took a risk on Birchbox, just like you do on every investment. What was it that told you this would be a smart move? Actually, Birchbox was our first investment in our first angel fund. So it has a very special place in my heart for lots of reasons. But, you know, we're consumer-oriented investors. We invest in the evolving landscape of commerce. In the VC world, women are, are far too underrepresented. And when you look at investing in companies and you looked at Birchbox, what was it that told you that this would be a smart move with your money? As a firm, we have an investment thesis, and it's about the evolving landscape of commerce. Um, And we think about it in the broadest sense. We invest in both B2C and B2B companies. And to the extent we're looking at a company that's interfacing with the consumer, we really focus in on delivering great customer experiences. We think that that's like the, the strongest place to compete from and to build loyalty with your consumer, which is inevitably is a strong hallmark of a, of a successful business. Um, and so one of the things that struck me about Birchbox right away was Katya and Haley's real understanding of the customer that they were serving and the experience that they wanted to deliver um, and the category that they were going after. I think just having that you know, really genuine, authentic understanding is meaningful, um, particularly when you're thinking about bringing a whole new experience to life. Birchbox was your first investment as a firm, is that right? It was, our first investment, our first um, investment in our angel, our first angel fund, yeah. What do you look at when you meet the founders, when you get pitched? What tells you in your gut? Yes. I mean, I think we were, no. we were on to an important part, which is, you know, how close of a match is it between the founding team and the customer problem or experience that they're looking to deliver? Um, a lot of times we are, you know, really focused on opportunities that have the ability to create a unique customer experience, leveraging digital with also a nod towards the offline environment. Um, over the last several decades, the prestige um, part of the segment has been built in the department store, and that's a channel that's been having decreasing sure. foot traffic for mall, the last several decades. traffic is down. You know, but that being said, you know, this, this big presence and the big beauty business got built there really on the backs of having a strong sampling and a strong education program. Mm. So one of the things that really struck me when, we first, uh, when I first met Katya and Haley was them thinking about taking those two activities and integrating them into an all-new online digital experience. To so take sampling, put products in people's hands, let them play and touch and, and learn about them, 
um, create content, have that be another vehicle for understanding the products, right. also enabling that to live out on the internet and reach broader audiences and really combine that in the shopping experience. How yeah. big is the US beauty market right now and the global beauty market right now? The global beauty market is estimated to be over $500 billion. Um, the U.S. representing at least a billion of that, but not being the largest consumer as a country by by far. And it's a you know generous in the sense that it's including services. But Kirsten did note that prestige prestige beauty and grooming in general is seeing the most explosive growth, and it also is seeing the most explosive growth online. Even though online still represents less than seven percent of beauty shopping huh. today in 2016. Because people want to feel it, try it, touch it, and you've merged the two. That was our insight, was that every category was seeing so much disruption and there was this huge movement of consumption onto the internet and every, even though everybody had small penetration, all the categories that we were looking at had massive growth except for beauty. Huh. Low penetration, low growth in 2010, and we thought, Someone's going to figure this out. Why couldn't we figure out? <laughs> we should out? do it first. Right. Let's figure out how to bring the beauty industry online for more than just replenishment. Do, do you think of this as a beauty company or a tech company or both? It's interesting that you say that you put it in those two, you know, categories. I think of ourselves as being in the business of serving consumers and the more and more Birchbox evolves and we get, you know, wiser in operating our business, we're so obsessed with the consumer and the evolution of how they're spending their days, where they're spending their days, the interplay of technology in the digital world but in the offline world. Um, right now we are definitely a beauty company that is thinking about the evolution of the consumer. So that tells me that you're thinking about, correct me if I'm wrong, this model going a lot further. I mean, you've already launched for men, but look, look at the explosion of Blue Apron, look at the explosion of other so what companies I'm, with a similar... I'm thinking about something that I think is pretty simple, but I believe like somewhat revolutionary, and it's that the internet in its current evolution and where it's going has caused the potential end of the 80-20 rule that used to exist in every industry, that you used to have to have mass messaging and serve your highest value consumer and focus on her and say, but everyone else can come. We'll take your money, everyone else, but we're focused on our hyper consumer. We ended up attracting the 80% at Birchbox and kind of waking up to oh my gosh, what would it be like to show this woman that she's our priority and that the 80% is a powerful group? And what I'm saying when I say that we're a beauty company today is that I think it is a revolution. I think that the idea that the 80-20 um, rule is over is going to touch many more categories. And whether Birchbox is related directly or you know through helping other industries realize that, mm -hmm. I'm extremely passionate mm. about the idea. Kirsten, when you look at some of these numbers, it is appalling that they exist in 2016. This Babson study came out in 2014. It showed women-led tech companies get less than 5% of VC funding. Why is that still happening? I imagine it's a complicated answer. It's a complicated situation. You know, I think that one of the things that um, at least for our, for our team that really resonates when we're meeting with founders is that ability to connect with the problem and the issue that you're solving and for that to also translate over to your investors. You know, I think that as an investor, you know, hopefully, hopefully one of the goals is, is that you're seeing as many things as possible. I mean, that's sort of what you need to be doing in the early stages in particular. Um, and if you have a genuine interest or a genuine connection or appreciation as an investor to what you're doing, the chances that you 
get the problem, you get the opportunity to deliver a better and new experience is higher. Um, and so I, I think mean, Kirsten's being generous. I think that it is not a complicated answer. I think that money is controlled by men in the private and the public sector, and that if you are pitching a, a business oriented towards a female consumer, that's a ding because they're not the consumer. Now, if you are a woman pitching a, female, a business oriented towards a female consumer, I think it's two dings. I think it is hard for somebody who's not going to be the end consumer of your product to really have a deep understanding of, in the case of Birchbox, the evolution that you see that could unfold. They didn't that, get it. It's extremely hard for them to understand the problem. They would, you know, in the early days, they would say things like, well, my wife doesn't use beauty products, which is a ridiculous That thing. happened to you? Yes, all the time. <laughs> and, you know, I, I think it's just this misunderstanding that we're coming in and saying, we love beauty. We want to build a beauty company, right? We're coming in and saying, you know, we believe that there's a better way to serve a consumer in a $500 billion industry mm -hmm. that has not seen disruptive innovation in decades how, of how to serve the consumer. I, I, how many men did you pitch? It would be embarrassing to say how many men we pitched that really immediately said that they didn't understand it, that they, why did it have to come in a box? Why did there have to be samples? Why did there, it was like all of the fundamental things that we were like, no, wait a minute. Sampling is actually the core thing that we believe will get someone to buy the product on the internet. Have, have you heard from any of them? Are they kicking themselves right now? It's interesting because I have heard from some of them and they have been so gracious and so wonderful. Um, and it, it definitely changed going from the first conversations and fundraising to the second round of fundraising. But look, one of the biggest wake up calls for me was realizing, yes, while well, had it changed, while well, Birchbox has built a really large company in a very short period of time, it is still not even close to a similar situation as it would be to be a male and and have a product or a category that male investors could really You think it'd be easier for you to raise the next round of funding if you were male? I do. I 100% do think it would be easier. But what's interesting is that there are also advantages to being a woman, and I believe that too. I believe that I, you know, am invited into the conversation often because I'm a woman, and that is they need the woman voice. They do, but you know, I'll take it. I'll take it. I got right. it earlier than I deserved it, and you know, it allowed me access to people that I have developed really important relationships with, and. Being, you know, diverse in a way has also been an opportunity and it's allowed huh. me to, you know, at least so have a seat. This, this fascinates me. You're saying even if you get invited to the table just because you're a woman and they need the token woman, you're going to grasp it and do everything you can with it. Oh my gosh, I am going to. The only thing that is going to change this, the only thing that's going to change the conversation we are having is for hundreds of thousands of women to have extraordinary success, mm -hmm. to become billionaires and to start investing in other people's companies. Is that your goal? Right? I mean, I want to change the whole conversation that we're having. I want to change the I want to change what it looks like to be a success story. I want to change the stats and how many women started and run their company into it being a public company. Mm -hmm. And I want to change what it's like to work at these companies. I think that being a woman gives us an opportunity to have a whole different work environment too. You told me earlier that you were angry. Angry that your company had been treated the way it had in the beginning by some potential male investors. It seems to me like you've taken that anger and translated it into success and just sort of see. Well, I, I would hate to ever be depicted as angry, but I think 
Were it, you ever angry? I think it's fair to say that there are times when I get angry. And it's not because I'm an angry person. It's because I'm disappointed that it's 2016 that we have to be having this conversation. I didn't expect it. I went to Vassar, okay? I graduated in 2005 thinking, we're done. You yeah. know, we are set. <laughs> like women are, you know, I was around such Run powerful, the world. dominated women. They're running the world. And I am shocked. And sometimes that makes me really angry that we are still having the conversation about equal pay, that we are mm -hmm. still having the conversation about women transitioning back to work after having kids, that we are still having the conversation of less than, you know, 10% of women are public company CEOs. It's true. It is a painful truth. A shocking truth. You sort of live a parallel existence in a very different field in terms of women being completely underrepresented. By the way, being able to get investors on board with your fund, what did you go through? Yeah, um, you know, I think a lot of what Katya says really resonates with me and, and reflects similarly in my experience. I think I grew up in the finance industry. I didn't honestly, for you know, a good decade plus in my career, give a lot of thought to it. I just was sort of the environment. There were more men. I was doing my job. I was working as hard as possible. Um, and then suddenly, particularly when we when we launched Forerunner and we you know made a statement with the fund and we raised outside capital um, and people invited us to come and talk to them, they wanted to have a conversation about being a woman in business. And I sort of at first didn't really know what to do with that. I mm -hmm. thought, wait, didn't I get invited here to talk about my mm -hmm. investment about thesis and my business, business and good business? Um, and I think, though, you know, there there was a process for me to just embrace that. I, okay, I had a podium. I could start talking about mm -hmm. it. I could, you know, I could talk about that topic as well as my business topic too. And I think sometimes we get calls from. Um, entrepreneurs that you know say like we respect the fact that you ha are a woman have a connection to our consumer we like that voice represented in the board and again I used to say well I wish somebody just would want me because of my perfectly relevant experience or really right. smart insights but you know what if, if, if it's gonna help get us in the door and get us that huh. invitation to be there um, you know I'll take that and then I'll prove that you know I'm every good bit as good on the business she's side the too. best or better she's yeah. the best and I mean I don't think I don't think it's about not wanting to be judged on the same merits as any other business person no. or entrepreneur. We want to have, you know, the same judgment. The reality is though is that if there are things that hold us back mm -hmm. and that's just the truth, mm -hmm. then why wouldn't we take this, you know, anything given to us that help us, you know, move forward, push forward, get access to things that we wouldn't have because we are a diverse voice at the table. I think it's interesting. I read that you once said that one of your strengths is the relationship aspect of the business, but that is a strength that you downplayed for a long time because you saw it as a more feminine strength, and now you are happy to bring it to the table, happy to be sort of forthright with it. When did that comfort level change for you? I think that really was an evolution for myself, you know, kind of coming of age in my career, getting comfortable in my own skin, sort of being um, increasingly cognizant of my own strengths and weaknesses and learning to play to them. Um, and I think that, you know, it's one of the things that led me to early stage investing. You know, I, I think from a practical standpoint, I've been always comfortable and in, in, with numbers and in the investment world and kind of working in that framework. Um, but I really enjoy people and I really like relationships. And I think my interest in that is what led me in part to consumer businesses and retailing businesses. And I think taking that a step further and getting to be partners with entrepreneurs and, um, you know, I, I think at the earliest stages, you know, you really almost work as a consigliere, sort of mm. just somebody that's like, they're another partner yeah. on your team, like call me anytime, any day or night, we'll work these things out together. Like for me, there's just a lot of personal reward in that and I, and I, I really enjoy that part of it.
Sexism in Silicon Valley. It's yeah. made a lot of headlines in the last year. It's made the cover of many magazines. Yeah. Is it real? Do you live it? It is real. It is real. Um, and I think in some ways it, it makes it more challenging to be a woman in the environment. Um, and so I think that's some of the things we're talking about right now is when you do get a window of opportunity that gets afforded to you maybe because you are a woman or because you are different at the table, you've got you've to run in and jump and take it. Mm -hmm. I think um, there are a lot of capable women uh, working in the, there are some, they're not enough, but there are capable women working in the industry that are um, making good investments, giving good advice, being strong voices in the boardroom, and really starting to you know, be part of this conversation and bring it to light. And I think hopefully that will inspire more women to do it. It'll inspire more women entrepreneurs, it'll inspire more women investors. And I think you really do need to get both of those going to kind of get a flywheel in effect. Do you want to take this company public? It's not about wanting to be a public company. It, obviously, it's about the right decision for Birchbox, but it's definitely about you know continuing to think about the company and build it as a standalone entity. And I never started Birchbox thinking, like, how am I going to get out of this thing, um, number one. Number two, I think that we're just really waking up to the opportunity of Birchbox. Mm. When we started it, we thought it's a pretty profound idea to bring the beauty industry online in a meaningful way, to really change the trajectory of people shopping and where they shop online, but what we recognized just over a year ago was that we are waking up a whole new consumer, that the majority of women have felt kind of like outsiders in the category of beauty because beauty isn't their passion, isn't the thing they lead with, and with Birchbox we can make them comfortable and confident and feel like there's a place for them there, and this idea of the end of the 80-20 rule or that Birchbox can really represent 80% of women and change their relationship. Mm. I think we're just getting started. I think it's a massive idea and I think that it will be, you know, a forever idea. Kirsten, how do you judge the success of Birchbox, right? I mean, no matter how much you love this investment because it was your first or you love Katya, you have to look at the numbers. How successful? Incredibly successful. Incredibly successful. I, I think that this team, you know, Katya and Haley have done an outstanding job since day one. Um, and I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that they started with their customer. They're always loyal to their customer. They're putting their customer forward. And they're thinking about that in every aspect of the business and the business model and the team that they hire and they build. And, um, you know, to go from 600 boxes to a million boxes right. and have a thriving online business um, in four and a half short years is, is pretty pretty incredible. What can you tell us? I know the numbers aren't, a lot of numbers aren't public yeah. because you are private, but what can you tell us of the growth, of the margins, of the sort of opportunity here, and how you judge this. And success. how we judge it. So, I mean, I think that, you know, particularly if you're doing early stage investing, venture investing, um, we are looking for big game changing ideas. We're looking for platform opportunities. We're looking for companies that are challenging the norms in the industry mm -hmm. and that are operating with an eye towards a more efficient business model. I think one of the things that Katya also mentioned that's, you know, so exciting about Birchbox is this ability to have the direct relationship with the consumer and really understand and get to know them, what products are resonating with them, what they're coming back to you for, what they're not coming back to you for, and be able to take that data and put it back into the back end of your business and use it to be better merchants, to be delivering more, you know, more of what's appropriate for that person in a box and prompting them to purchase is, is super meaningful. And the, the, the result of that is a healthier margin business. It is a business that's more efficient with how they're marketing. It is a business that's more efficient with how they're planning their inventory and how they're cycling through their inventory. You mentioned data. What's the single most important piece of data 
that you get on your customers? The, I mean, the most powerful thing is context, I would say. So it is who you are and how context starts to shape and, and change, like your actual predisposition to be a consumer of beauty, to be a consumer of skincare, then to become a consumer of high-priced skincare. It's really interesting to kind of watch the evolution based on where what you What they come back for. Right. So when they come in, they might tell us, you know, that they're a very passive beauty consumer, that they're here to really just learn. And you watch that evolution. In six months of Birchbox, the average subscriber doubles their spend in beauty. And that's a huge validation for the business model. It's a, for the it's a crazy shift. And so that doubles it on Birchbox? On everybody. Actually, we've, we've done our own studies, but so have other journalists looking at the Birchbox effect at other beauty retailers and how we're basically training up this new consumer. And that's what I was saying when I said we kind of woke up and realized, oh my goodness, we're not competing against the woman that used to go to department stores or who's going into these other stores. We're mostly competing with non-consumption because women are under-consuming because they don't have a very positive relationship with this category or one at all. Um, and we can really shape that. And I, you know, I feel really strongly that in a category as discretionary as beauty, Right? I'm not yeah. kidding myself. Beauty is 100% discretionary. But every dollar you spend in a discretionary category should be enjoyable. It should be delightful. You should love spending discretionary dollars. And it is painful to me that consumers ever feel like it's a chore. They have to go like replenish their foundation. <laughs> that you know, it's intimidating. They don't want to ask for help because someone's going to try to sell them a million things or spray them with perfume. Like that is a horrible reality in any discretionary category. And the idea that we could take that away and make people feel great when they spend every dollar, the end of that beauty graveyard that makes us all feel guilty and wasteful. It's, it's really exciting and it's, it's a really fun pursuit. What does interest me is the fact that you see a Sephora, for example, as a big competitor, perhaps totally. more so than the online competitors that might have a more similar business model to yours. Why, oh, right. why is that? Well, because at the end of the day, we always started Birchbox with this idea of building a new destination place to shop for beauty. But what we realized was that the internet wasn't going to become a destination just naturally, right? Because people wanted to touch it and try it and feel it. So Sephora is, you know, one of the beauty retailers that's growing. So they and might learn want- about it on Birchbox and then go there and buy it. Oh yeah, the data shows that they're going and buying it there sometimes. And so what we want is for consumers to understand that you know, we want the whole virtuous cycle to happen on Birchbox, but we also recognize, I mean, you're in our store for a reason, that if we're going to own the beauty majority spend in beauty, then we have to think multi-channel. So how do you get them not to go to Sephora? You know, I don't think of it, think about them not going to Sephora immediately. I think about growing the beauty market and that there will be some people who come now to Birchbox and some people that we train up to go to other places. And at the end of the day, we're for the consumer, right? We don't need you to make sacrifices that are inconvenient for you as a consumer. You go the places that you're supposed to go. And the fact that Birchbox isn't on every corner, hey, I know that, right? But I need to make my mobile experience the most amazing of anybody's. I need to make every touch point that you have with me. Mm -hmm. I need you to know that I know you, number one and that I care about you, number two. Maybe in the reverse order, but very important to me that every time I have with you, you know that I respect that time. So a loyalty play. It's not loyalty, it's a relevance play, huh. right? It's the evolution from personalization to humanization. Not only do I have your data, right, because that is personalization, but it is the whole way that that data responds to the environment you're in. 
where you live. Eventually, we could probably partner with 23andMe and see your likelihood to have <laughs> produced more collagen in your 30s based on like your you know ancestry. Well, that's a so wild thought. It's thinking about that. It's thinking and obsessing. It's thinking, in a, it's thinking in a relationship context, you know, right. really. And if you do a good job with that, like why wouldn't you just keep coming back to the same person that knows you, that understands you, that engages sure. with you? You come from the brick and mortar world. Yeah. This was as you covered companies like The Gap, et cetera, and the stores and the malls. Um, should there be a birch box on every corner, should, like a Sephora? Should that be the goal? You know, one of the things we ask ourselves early on when we're looking at a new business idea is, you know, how how might this business play right. in this multi-dimensional world? You know, one of the beliefs we have is the customer wants what the customer wants, when they want it, how they want it, and where they want it. And they it. want it now, you know? thanks and to And the Amazon. challenge is, is how do you meet that, you know? And so usually I think it comes from a place of kind of understanding who your consumer is, what they might expect from you in a particular channel, and then what is a unique experience that you can really own and deliver in that way. I do think that there's plenty of reasons to believe that there's a real um, extension of the relationship and adding to the relationship that can happen in the confines of this store. Whether it needs to be, you know, on every corner, mm -hmm. I, I don't think that's true because Birchbox is satisfying like the access issue by shipping to you anywhere in a relatively, you know, very short, convenient way. And I mean, I think that we're, you're witnessing the, what's happening is the real cycle of having a store in every corner, right? It becomes unsustainable if you don't have something really differentiating and a real experience that people want to be in. So you I also think, can't control it as right. much. You can't control it as much. And I mean, I do think that in the next months and years, we're going to watch people that have a store in every corner make really tough decisions about that. We've already seen it start to happen. But the reality is, is that it's not about just convenience, right? The internet is really convenient. You can get so much convenience from that. But what we're learning is that people come to stores. I mean, one of the biggest things I learned was because of the people who are in the stores. Right? I mean, it is so much about the user experience in stores. And that is something that's really surprised me as we open stores. When you are an online company, you talk about user experience like every other word. You just had probably the most difficult moment as a founder of a company, having to lay off 15% of the workforce. Walk me through that decision making, and then I want to hear from you if there was any sort of counseling or guidance back and forth and what that was like. Sure. So. The decision in, in terms of having to make changes of Birchbox's org and lay off people, it was a really challenging decision. I don't know if it will be the most challenging decision the company will ever go through, but I'll acknowledge that it felt like a real moment that we needed to make sure we handled as best as we could because of two reasons. One is that we would never be where we are today without the people who built it, and that is the truth. And that is the reality of what it takes to build a very big business in a short period of time, is that it is a ton of very hard work from very smart people. But the other reality in my job mm -hmm. is to understand the evolution that the company needs in terms of the kinds of talent that is there every single day based on what the consumer wants, the consumer values, what we're gonna deliver, and that evolution. And the truth is that the change for the consumer is happening faster than ever. And if we don't acknowledge that that change will likely require changes in skill set on the team, we're never going to be able to stay relevant to them. So, you know, it was a really challenging decision, but one that feels extremely important for the company long term and one that I'm not embarrassed by. One that I'm in some ways I recognize is just a reality of trying to build something great and build something lasting. And what did you say to her about it? Well, I mean, I think while 
you'd like to avoid something like that. In some ways, it is a coming-of-age moment. Mm. You know, when you start a company and you have lofty ambitions and you're chasing after an opportunity set in a fast way, there is this kind of, you know, there there's a constant decision-making stream about where to invest your precious resources, how to build your team, how to hire people, and a lot of learning is happening on the fly. And I think that at a different, you know, at every stage of a company, there are different priorities to focus on. And you get to a stage where you have a business of a certain scale, and you say, we're in business, you know, with one of the big mandates is to make money, right? And so what is the, you know, what is the optimum organization to continue to deliver the great experience that we believe is a hallmark of our business and to continue investing in growth, but is to also achieve a self-sustainable business level so that we can continue to, to be around for a long time. And sometimes that comes with, you know, some hard realizations that- Did you say that to her? There were, I mean, I, I think- Kristen has been a part of every hard conversation ever. Um, I think, you know, the thing that made me feel really strong when I talked to Kirsten was she's an amazing listener. And that is a very differentiating, you know, thing about her. So she listened to all of the conflicting emotions I had about sure. the experience. And she she made me feel like she trusted my judgment on it. And I did. Totally. And I think that, you know, I think that the companies that we're involved with that really kind of come out of the box and hit almost an unnatural stride, a lot of it ties back to the type of culture that's been built at the firm and the type of leadership mm -hmm. that the founders have put forth and their ability to attract great talent and to empower them. And you, you need to care about your people in order to do that and to create that type of loyalty. And so when it came time to make, you know, explore a decision like this, like, I think there was no underestimating how big of a deal it was personally and, and professionally how it felt. So I felt like in some ways the best thing to do was to kind of was to support the decision and to empathize with the challenge that it was, but to know that it was the right thing to do. How does Birchbox not get replicated, say, by a behemoth like an Amazon who could yeah. say, oh, we really like that business. And by the way, we have the scale. I mean, Thanks. I you think about this all I the time. So. <laughs> Actually, less than a year into Birchbox's launch, so in 2011, Amazon did launch a copycat of Birchbox with Allure Magazine and Beauty Bar. And it was one of the scariest days of my life. I was like, okay, this is like A, come. a huge compliment yeah. and B, uh-oh. Yeah. Um, and to be honest, it was really lucky that we were growing so fast. We hit our five-year number in seven months. We were growing so fast that we didn't have time to react. We were so focused on delivering to our consumer and not dropping the ball and really building the company that we saw. And I think two things. I think that it's actually really hard to copy vision and that this industry, the beauty industry, especially the prestige beauty industry, it's not a place you go for this like very functional relationship with the category, right? Like you go for the fantasy. You go for like the story. You go to have, you know, this change experience. Um, so it isn't just about the idea that, you know, you can get things like of delivered to you. Like you can get them delivered to Bert by Birchbox right. in the same amount of time. And the reason that we've been able to, in such a short period of time, become such a contender for where you buy your beauty mm. is because we don't think about it as just function. We think about it as the intersection of delight and function or delight and efficacy. And that is the revolution is that consumers realize that they used to compartmentalize these experiences. This is a place where I go for convenience. This is a place where I go to have like a joyous experience. And now you can compete by saying, hey, consumer, you can have your cake and eat it too right here. And you can shop from a company that loves you back. Like where it isn't a one-sided relationship where every engagement point you give us, 
we are going to use that to deliver you a better mm. experience next time. It is a huge revolution. It's allowed very small or just starting companies to compete with the behemoths, and it is not over. It's just starting. Mm. Talk to me about social media from a VC's perspective. Right. How much does social media, if I'm Snapchatting this, if I'm tweeting this, if I'm putting it on Facebook, how much does it actually matter in terms of sales? I think marketing is one of the most dynamic and challenging parts of building a consumer business today. You know, I think in a lot of ways, it's not that hard to put a website up and start a store, right? But how do you rise above that noise? How do you start to gain mind share with the customer? And that's something like we almost start asking ourselves as investors very early on when we're considering an opportunity is what can this company do to rise above the noise? Is there something about their business model that's going to lend itself to viral aspects? Is there something about the, the, the positioning or the story? Telling opportunities that they can, that can allow them to create interesting content and have that live around the web. Social media is really important. Before the web got social, building these businesses was a whole lot harder, hmm. um, and it was it was not as dynamic. It was know? one. To, it was never one to one. It was that top twenty percent. Like you build mass messages right. to target your top yeah. consumer. And I think that is one of the things that first captured my imagination about what Birchbox could be. Was this idea of the sampling and the education, the tutorials, the videos, the ability to kind of create these little pieces of content and start to share them out on the, on the internet and get people kind of exposure to Birchbox through something where they were having a learning moment or right. getting something in that way. Um, and I think as you continue to build out a brand, you know, similar to your distribution channels, you need to think about what, how are you showing up mm. in each of those places? And so like across the board, we are you know, always encouraging companies to think about how do you, you know, what's relevant for you on Facebook, what's relevant right. for you on Snapchat, what's relevant for you on Instagram. One of the things we're doing right now is taking our whole portfolio around to all of these big players to talk about that. How far do you think that Birchbox can go? How far do you think Katya can go? What's your goal for them? I think Katya can go the distance and I think Birchbox can go the distance. I have always believed that even if Birchbox just stayed in the beauty lane, there is a huge, incredible opportunity for all the reasons that we've been discussing today. If you look at how the company's executed for the last four years, what they've been able to achieve, how Katya's been able to go from a startup founder with a partner and a, an idea to building a company with hundreds of people that love working there, that are you know believe in the mission, that show up every day with new enthusiasm for the next chapter, is incredible. Um, and I think that you know that that is the biggest asset of the company right now, and the market is huge. So the combination, you know, is very incredibly exciting. Have you spoken, or, or are you willing to speak publicly at all about what that next lane might be outside of beauty? It's we're definitely not focused on being outside of beauty. Don't need to. It's more that there are other people yeah. that I have you know the the privilege of meeting in their own categories and. Look, I get asked all the time, Katya, is a subscription a fad? Are you like in a fad business? And I think subscription is the natural evolution of a highly fragmented market where people have more choices than ever mm -hmm. and where the idea that you could be passive and still have a personalized experience so that every discretionary dollar you spend is spent on something you adore, you love. I think it's a natural, the natural way that people's shopping behavior is I, going I to have change. to pipe up because the subscription thing is one of my, my most impassioned things to talk about. This is not a subscription business. People will ask me like, <laughs> oh, you know, what are all these subscription businesses? You invest in them. I said, I've never invested in a subscription business. I've invested in companies that are focused on delivering a great customer experience. Right. If you happen to have an element of the customer experience that you're looking to bring to life that fits naturally into something that looks like a subscription business, like, 
that actually can you know be a benefit and be a, a good opportunity right. from a business model standpoint. Mm -hmm. But really, this is not about a subscription. That's this is not. about engaging with your consumer around beauty. It's about taking them on a journey for beauty. It's about what Katya talked earlier, which I think is super meaningful, which is getting people comfortable with beauty, getting people to have fun with it, who don't and to play with already it. want that, who aren't like they don't feel like it's missing from their lives, right? They are passively in the category, and we allow them to basically stay passive. But you don't have to go try to figure this all out. It is quite hard. So I think, yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely the biggest question I always get is, is are subscriptions going to end? I'm like, that's such a ridiculous question. It just happens to be like a mechanism. If you build a business just for a subscription, it will end. Thank you, ladies. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in to this edition of Boss Files. You can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Poppy Harlow CNN. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.